Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 47th blockbuster holiday episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that leaves bulk under the chimney for Santa. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and everyone who's listening to this uh, five days later after we record it. Looking forward to our kind of year in review episode. Uh, Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So we're shaking up the agenda uh, this week, folks. Uh, Travis, you want to break down how we're going to do this? Sure. Well, we're going to use this opportunity this week to look back at how this year went for us. So segment one is going to be the largest gainers of the year, the cards that saw the largest price increases that that we captured, um, with the caveat that these had to have been a little stable. Uh, you might be, might be able to find a few cards that had larger percentage spikes, but they lasted all of a day. So these were stuff that we tried to kind of had a, a slight bit of some some legs at least uh segment two is going to be our best and worst this is where james and i are going to take a few minutes to look back at some of our best and worst calls throughout the year um the cards that we think you know kind of made you the most money and, and saw the largest jumps in value uh, from where we recommended them as well some of the ones that we missed because it's always a good idea to to keep that in perspective and, and understand why you might have missed originally and then segment three, uh, we're going to look at kind of topics of the year. Uh, this is where we're going to touch on several ideas, concepts, threads, uh, narratives from 2016 um, in Magic Finance, uh, what we've learned and uh, what what we might be looking at for the year forward. So, uh, you know, the biggest lessons of the year. Um, so let's start on segment one, the largest gainers of the year. Uh, I'll start us out. The very our first card uh, out of the top 10 here um, is Gaia's Avenger from Antiquities. Um, this started at about three dollars and jumped up to about 20 at one point. That was for uh, over 500 percent gain. Uh, this would have occurred back in mid February. Um, is when it jumped. It had been very stable for quite a long time, then a sudden spike, and uh, it's kind of flowed in that range since then. It's dwindled off a little bit, but but not as much as I would have expected it to. Um, I, I attribute this to uh, to the ninety three ninety four uh, plus um, you know reserve list type of thing here. Uh, you know, kind of both of those factors working together. Yeah, I think I would lean heavier towards the. Uh, reserve list side of that we've seen a lot of two dollar three dollar four dollar kind of like throw in uh early stage magic cards from antiquities and arabian nights and legends kind of go from utter obscurity um into the spotlight as their inventory has been drained by collectors looking to to finish up their um collections of some of those older sets as well as a consolidation of reserve list cards into speculation portfolios as people um you know have placed a lot of bets this year on some of those cards um, on the basis that they're just simply never getting reprinted again. Right. You know, there were a lot of cards that I saw with looking through all of our results that probably, you know, technically could have made this. um, And there was a lot of the same thing. Those antiquities um, 
Legends cards that kind of spiked and then dropped. It's just most of them dropped too fast to really matter. Gaia's Avenger was one of the few that held on for a little bit longer. I mean, in certain metagames in EDH, the card's not insane um, to, to have on the table. It's a three-cast-and-cost creature that could be uh, XX plus one uh, or X plus one, X plus one, where X is the number of artifacts your total number of opponents control according to the gatherer rule text. So um, mm-hmm. there's some small use case there. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. You could be worse. It could be that one that makes you sacrifice your untapped forests. <laughs> yeah, it could also be Urza's... Uh, meter or whatever it's called or is this miter miter yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, all right what's our next card james so narcamoeba foils from mma um spiked from two dollars and fifty cents to 16 as dredge made its way back into the modern metagame in a big way in the mid-year and continued through the fall um they've since slid back uh towards five dollars um, as most of the people that were interested in getting their hands on some seem to have done so. Um, it's also, there are a couple of different foil printings, uh, starting with the future site printing, but this was good for a 540% gain at, uh, for a couple of weeks um, as it was spiking hard and, and quick on dredge success. Mm-hmm. This one, uh, specifically, the, the, the reason it's Modern Masters and not anything else is that the... Um, the future site copy was already very expensive at the start of all of this, whereas the Modern Masters one was, you know, the foil, the foil future site copy started at ten, and then the uh, Modern Masters one started at two fifty, um, and then both kind of land in the same spot, which is why this one shows up more so than the other. A very nice twelve or thirteen dollars per copy for people who managed to out them into the spike. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, the next card. Uh, from not that long ago uh, was Bloodspore Thrynax from Commander 2015. Now, this is a recent one. I think we talked about this just three or four weeks ago. Um, this started its life uh, at about a dollar, jumped to uh, over six bucks, um, still very close to that. Uh, in fact, it's it's aside from the like one day, uh, you know, pie in the sky price after the spike, it's actually risen a little bit from kind of where it dropped back to. But yeah, it was around a dollar. It's now five or six. Um, this was part of the uh, swath of cards that all jumped tremendously in response to the printing of Brea and Atraxa. Um, two two catalysts that I think are we're not done seeing the, the aftershocks of either. Yeah, this is a good example of uh, commander cards from a year or two ago um, showing movement uh, as fresh product is pushed into the marketplace. Um, Thrinix is uh, in a good position with any deck that likes to abuse plus one plus one counters. Attracts, as you said, um, has been a topic du jour for us for for weeks now um, as one of the more popular new commanders. And uh, this was just one of many uh, counter-related cards that have made a move in the last month or two. Uh, okay, what's next for us? So Mind Slicer out of Odyssey uh, made a move from $1.50 to $10 and has slid back down to 5 bucks, but was good for about a 560% gain or about $8 a copy during the, the height of it, the peak of its uh, spiking uh, in the summertime. Um, we were pretty critical of this spike at the time. I'm actually surprised it's it's held on to as much of its price gains as, as it has. Um, I still doubt how frequently people are able to out copies of this card, but it, it is showing up in EDH decks here and there. Um, it does have a reasonable effect in that format, and uh, doesn't uh, seem like it's going to be on the agenda to be reprinted anytime soon. 
Yeah, I actually really like it in EDH. Um, it's it's a useful effect there. I remember this originally spiked because uh, LSV made a joke about it or something on stream. Uh, I don't have the specifics, but it was something to that effect, quite silly. And the prices went nuts. And then it was like, oh, it's actually the price stuck because it's a useful card, does cool things. So uh, just kind of an example of how some of these price spikes have odd beginnings, uh, but they still uh, still carry on. All right, so what's next on the list? Well, our next card is Squandered Resources from Visions. Uh, this was in response to uh, the Gitrog monster. Um, I know, this, so this would have spiked back in March, which I, yeah, that would have been right around the time that, she, yeah, right before Shadows of War Innistrad release. So um, we would have seen the Gitrog monster spoiled uh, and then Squandered Resource went nuts. Um, this is a two-mon enchantment that allows you to sack lads, lands to add mana. It's from Visions. It's from Reserve List. So we kind of had all those factors going on with it. Uh, but it went from $0.70 cents or so, and it's now like 6 to $7. So a, a really large a really large jump there. Uh, you know, if you had noticed this and picked these up way before the get rog was spoiled just realizing that it was a powerful reserve list card you would have been uh you would have been real happy about this because man this was 70 cents for a long time yeah i just happened to have a few of these randomly lying around in binders and was happy to out them but uh did not have any uh foresight related to get rog play yeah yeah well you know i think a lot of people had one or two of these floating around from collections if they had been buying collections for any length of time uh but even still you know it, it was it's hard to would have been hard to justify this um on anything uh given how long it had been so cheap you know it's one of those cards that you're like this seems like it should be more expensive and it is it just never spikes for years and years and years you're like i guess it's never coming and then oh there it is so tell me about Worship. What happened with that? Uh, Worship was in response to, uh, I believe this was a Saffron Olive article. Um, I can't put my finger on which one. Um, it was a bit of sideboard tech for uh, several strategies. And the idea was that decks like Zoo and what have you are um, essentially unable to beat Worship. Um, and we saw the price go from 250 to $20 at one point. Uh, it was a, about a 700% gain. So it's come down a little bit since then. I mean, seventh edition copies are in like the nine to $10 range. Um, and, you know, the other copies are, are float around in there as well. But uh, still a, a powerful sideboard effect that waxes and wanes in utility. Um, several printings, but they're all very old. Uh, but this can be reprinted. Uh, not that I would think Wizards would be in a rush to do anytime soon, but um, it is on the table. So we also saw uh, Magus of the Tabernacle um, out of... Uh moved from $0.50 cents to $4.50 for a $4 gain. That was about 800%. It has since slid back to $2. Um, and this is the uh, creature out of uh, Future Sight, if I'm not mistaken. No, um, uh, Planar uh, Chaos. Planar, yeah, yeah Planar Chaos. Um, Planar Chaos. Uh, and it emulates the original Tabernacle of Pendle Vale, where um, all creatures um, have an upkeep cost of one mana, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yep. Gives a tabernacle the Pendrel Veil effect on a creature. Which was uh which is stifling to say the least. It's a little less effective on a form on a creature than it is on a land, um, but still very powerful. 
Um, and I know Corbin Holsler wrote about it a little bit, popped up somewhere else. Uh, none of the play materialized, but even still, it took, uh, what is it, from February all the way through Kaladesh's release, it was over $2. So it was a slow ride down. Inventory has flooded back into the market. There's plenty of these uh, available for sale in the $2 range now. So I suspect this is one of the, the ones that people had uh, the most trouble getting out of in time to make any money on it. Yeah, almost definitely. And uh, But I do think it's worth pointing out that this is uh, definitely a viable spike again. Um, you know, I don't know what would have to happen for this to become very popular, but it's certainly the type of card that has an extremely powerful and narrow effect that, uh, you know, the right modern deck coming along could certainly push that north again. Not very often we see four mana two sixes make it in modern, Um but, you know, there have been uh, several strange decks that have caught me by surprise this year, so I don't put anything past uh, the brewing teams anymore. Yeah, I mean, once Codex Shredder became a modern staple, you know, I think it was <laughs> fair to say, like, all right, you know what, I'm just done guessing. Yes. Anything I, that's unique. I, I definitely ch- have cherished the evolution of Lantern Control from uh, something that people immediately wrote off as utter jank to a ter- multi-tournament winning uh, uh, tier two deck in the format. Well, it was certainly something. I will give you that. So next on our list, we have Electrostatic Pummeler, one of the only standard cards to be a big mover um, on this list this year. Uh, Moving from $0.50 to $5, uh, a spike that did not last long um, uh, shortly after the Pro Tour, and the card has now sank back into the $1.50 range. So um, one of the lessons here is that when standard rares spike in the face of uh, increasing uh, supply, as this you know shortly after a sets major sets release, especially a full set, you really need to jump on that bandwagon and get out as fast as you can. You don't want to be caught holding two or three hundred copies of a standard rare because you're just not going to be able to out them fast enough to take advantage of whatever um, uh, hype value they're getting from whatever major tournament has placed the card on camera. Yeah, for sure. You know, there was probably there would have been a moment where you could have profited off of this, but it was uh, certainly um, short. Uh, so, you know, it is probably has spent less time at its peak value than many of the other cards um, that we discussed today. But I did want to point it out because it was it is a standard card and um, we don't see a lot of those in this list this time around. Yeah, a, a spiking standard rare is kind of like a setting fire to a movie theater that only has a single exit, like everyone's rushing for the door at the same time, um, and you're going to have trouble profiting from your adventures. Yeah, also, you know, painful and people die. I don't know. I feel like there's a better metaphor in there, but I couldn't find it. All right. Uh, so our second place gainer for the year, uh, foil percentage-wise, percentage-wise, right, right, uh, is foil, con- was it, wait, no, that's not even the foil copy. No, wait, 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 that's just the normal copy. Yeah, the normal non-foil, Conflagrate from Time Spiral. Uh, copies used to be about 40 cents um, at the start of this year, and they were for quite a while, and then shortly after Eldritch Moon, uh, which was in, uh, you know, July, uh, they printed Prized Amalgam. And that was the prize amalgam and, uh, and then Kaladesh brought with a cathartic reunion, but it was really prize amalgam that did it. Um, really pushed dredge back into modern, uh, and conflagrate went nuts as a tremendous, uh, innate, um, enabler and, 
uh, way to close out games. Um, you know, you get to return six or seven, and you if you haven't killed them already, you just conflagrate them for 10 damage. So started out at 40 or 50 cents, has been 40 or 50 cents for years. Suddenly a time, you know, one printed uncommon from Time Spiral that's part of a tier one modern deck. And, you know, it's $5, and they sell at $5. Uh, yeah, it's holding price. So- yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been holding price for a while now. So this really goes to show, I think, that this is really interesting. It just shows you, like, if you have a single printed uncommon um, and it's suddenly part of a tier one modern deck, it, there's no limit on its price, right? Like we saw with Mishra's Bobble. We're seeing it with Conflagrate. Um, you know, like a week or two ago, I wrote about Silvergill Adept uh, in one of my articles. It's just something to keep an eye on because if Merfolk push into modern, which is a possibility with um, next year's uh, – Atlazan set possible possible um i mean it's like two dollars you could see another 15 dollar uncommon uh there's just no supply on these cards 10 year old uncommons may as well be mythic rares in the modern context and we've talked about that before um that r- rarity is not always the whole story um and if, you gotta put your tinfoil hat on for a second when you start talking about dredge's history in 2016 because between the com- the the combination of unbanning golgari grave troll um a singular card that the format was absolutely not in need of um, as some kind of specific foil or counter to dominant strategies at the time. Um, and then the printing of Prize Nemelgum, which is uh, the kind of card that only really fits into dredge-style graveyard recursion decks. And then the printing of Cathartic Reunion, um, which, again, is, is only useful in that context. Um, it really starts to feel like somebody over there wanted that deck to be back in the format. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if nothing else, at the very least, uh, you know, Cathartic Reunion was certainly where you're like, how are they printing this card? Like, how is this a card that they want in the format? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That is that is one bonkers enabler. Yeah. So our, our biggest j- gainer of the entire year, at least percentage-wise, um, was Thopter Foundry, um, breaking through the glass ceiling, uh, in the face of the unbanning of Sword of the Meek for Modern, um, moving Thopter Foundry briefly from $0.50 cents to $10 for a 1,900% gain, $9.50 a copy, and if you could out them even at 6 or $7 a copy and you'd been hanging on to them for a while in a binder, I'm sure you were pleased. Um, the card is currently back down to about a dollar because it just got reprinted again in Commander 2016, um, which has definitely put a cap on the fun for this uh, big, big gainer of 2016. Yeah, it's kind of funny how it jumped so hard and then it kind of ties back in to what we'll talk about later and suddenly it went from this ridiculous profit to uh, just, you know, oh, it's in Commander, there you go. It's just gone. Your profits are just crushed. So uh, an interesting story in that card, I think. Um, well, and to be fair, the the I mean, the card was already on the way down, um, pretty had already fallen quite a bit before the reprinting um, and this was just kind of like a kick in the nuts to anybody who was still holding any. Um, but the reality was that, you know, Thopter Foundry slash Sword of the Meek just turned out not to be good enough in modern right now. Um, it's, it's just too slow. Yeah. Which for the record, I think is absolutely going to turn around once they get rid of, uh, probably get, uh, become amends or get Daxian probe. I, I, I kind of have difficulty wrapping my head around how this isn't good enough for modern right now, but yeah, probably because of the speed. Yeah. I have a weird deck brewed up that uses, uh, uh, Smuggler's Copter and Bitter Blossom to try to pull this whole thing together into a new shell with tezzeret um but it'll be pure jank until we get a couple more cards smuggler's copter is interesting you know (laughs) um 
All right, so let's move on to segment two. Our best and worst of the year. This is where we're going to talk about some of the cards that I think we really we really hit out of the park on, and uh, ones where uh, the park hit us. So, what do you? Uh, what's the best way to to do this? You want to alternate our best cards and then go through the worst? Do you think? Uh, let's trade back and forth, starting from our like lowest percentage uh, gainers that are on our best list. Um, and and folks, this is you know the same when you're listening to a, a film podcast. This is the part where they go, you know, spoilers coming up. Except for us, it's uh, humble brags incoming. Um, you know, if if you're not interested in hearing us make a list of the cards that we, we called out to you that did well, um, feel free to fast forward ten minutes because that's probably how long it's going to take us to go through all this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I don't like to hear people pat themselves on the back, and I I'm going to avoid uh, excessive uh, self flagellation. But you know, given that we're in the position that we're recommending these types of cards to you and, and sharing this information, this type of of uh, self uh, awareness and editing is important um, because it helps us see what we did well and what we didn't do well. And you know, if you if you have a job in the real world, you know that this kind of goes on in a professional environment too. So this isn't just to make us feel good. This is to kind of give you an idea of how things have been and and, and let, gives you some information engaging what we share with you in the future as well yeah and we're definitely going to hit both sides of this like mm-hmm. um we're going to have some good fun here making fun of ourselves for some of these picks uh, yeah. <sighs> bad taste in my mouth on some of these <laughs> all right well you know i'll start it off um so just a couple weeks ago i recommended chromatic lantern it had just come out uh the, the commander 14 decks or 16 decks had just come out Chromatic Lantern was only in one of them, uh, but we got five decks that were all four color plus a partner mechanic uh, opened up something like 166 combinations of, of decks. Um, and Chromatic Lantern uh, had had plummeted from, I don't know, it was like 10 or $15 or something down to, to like 3 or $4. Uh, and I was like, hey, these are these are three bucks. You can find them around three. I think they're between three and four in the area. Um, I said, these are... Uh, are going to go up eventually. I'm not clear on how long it will take, but but there's definitely uh, value in here. And then it took like a week. I mean, I kind of can't believe how fast this happened. And this isn't one of the highest gainers that I talked about this year, but it was the one with like the shortest time in between. Uh, you know, with you know time in between, I recommended it and spiking and the, how much you could make off of it. Um, you know, I picked up a handful, and I can't believe how fast I'm selling these at seven dollars. And it's just like, man, this just came out. Uh, so you know, if you were on the ball when I talked about this, uh, you would you would have done pretty well for yourself. Um. Although, to be perfectly fair, I'm pretty sure when I talked about it, I did not say you have a week to buy them. No. I mean, and the thing is, like, I think you're doing even better than you, than you take credit for here. You said you're selling at 7, but, I mean, I'm seeing them on TCG Player basically sold out below 10. So, um, and I know that this one had a helping hand from some speculators that went pretty deep on the card, but the, the logic was solid. It was only in one of the five decks, but all of the decks want it. The card is constantly in demand in the format. It's one of the most played mana rocks because it fixes your mana like nothing else can. And it it may as well be a mythic rare if it's only in one of the decks. Um, there's a huge difference between, you know, getting five copies if you, you buy the full set versus getting just the one if you, if you pick up that particular deck um, and you're planning on playing that particular commander. And uh, I think it was a smart move by everybody that was involved. Uh, one that I was definitely left out on, but uh, definite tip of the hat. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, how about you? What did you start with? So one of the ones that moved uh, the least in percentage terms, but uh, the most in raw dollar terms was 
uh, mid-spring call to get in on Bazaar of Baghdad. Uh, I've been advocating all year that I think Legacy is a dying format in the sense that uh, people are going to continue to play it, but that I don't think they're going to have uh, significant player growth without the support of Wizards, um, which has been withdrawn at both the Star City Games and, and the GP level. Um, but a card like Bazaar of Baghdad is, is kind of like a tier two power card. Um, it has enough chops as a collectible um, you know, an iconic piece of magic history that um, I, I could see future growth. And in looking at the available inventory online, it became clear that there were less and less copies. So I called it in and around $800 um, shortly after acquiring one um, that I had gotten through Puka Trade back in the days where if you can believe it, you <laughs> could still get cards like that on Puka Trade. Um, and said that it was probably headed for $1,100 in the like mid to, to long term targeting something like six to 18 months. Well, here we are about nine months later, and they're already sitting at in and around $900. And it won't take very many more copies to get bought up before we're going to be talking about the $1,000 to $1,100 range that I predicted. Yeah, I mean, that uh, that was probably a tough one for a lot of our listeners to get, you know, to just pick up. But yeah, I mean, that's it's a nice little chunk of change there that you could have made per copy. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, if you're the kind of person who's got... Uh, plenty of excess income, but doesn't have a lot of time. These are the kind of moves you want to make because they're kind of fire and forget. You can sit on them for a while. You don't really have to worry too much about tracking the day-to-day price because it doesn't shift very quickly. And when it does shift, it tends to shift up. Um, and that's going to continue to be the case for most of these um, you know, premium uh, collector level uh, power, tier one, tier two power cards for the foreseeable future in, in, unless the sky falls out from under us and uh, Wizards announces that the reserve list is in, in jeopardy. Right, right. Yeah, until that comes, these are all going to be uh, pretty hard to miss on, I would say. Um, okay, so my second card, uh, my next best pick was doubling season. Um, I called this several months ago. I think it was in the spring or the summer, uh, and they were about twenty five dollars at the time. They were under thirty. I said, "Hey, you know, this is a, a perennial EDH staple. Everyone loves them. I don't think we're looking at any copies this year. Uh, you know, it's going to take a little while to get there, but I think I, at the time I said they could they could break fifty dollars pretty easily, which was a double up. Well, then we got Bray and Atraxa." And uh, I have now sold several copies over sixty dollars. Um, they just they just emptied. Uh, so you know this was you had a lot of time to see this coming. Um, there was low inventory when I talked about it back in back earlier this year, so you could kind of see that the, the the you know the stage was set for this to happen. Um, and you know this this is again this also kind of ties into one of the larger lessons we can talk about is how EDH has just been you know, one of the most valuable places to find money um, this year and probably will be in the future. Uh, you know, doubling season is is a staple of that format. And when those cards drop in price, uh, there was a reason that they were staples in the first place. Um, and they will generally get back to where they were so long as Wizards doesn't reprint them the dust. Yeah, I mean, I remember this pick and I remember giving you credit for like maybe a 5 to $10 gain. Um, I did not see the $60 plus price tag coming. Um, and definitely underestimated how hard and fast uh, Commander could push this card um, without a reprinting. Oh, I don't remember you being that rude about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think giving ten dollars on a twenty-five is pretty generous in in general. But uh, I, I was certainly happy to out the promo copies of these that I bought under twenty-five, um, over fifty, and call it a day. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, okay, what was your next one? 
So one of the other reserve list cards that I called out this year was uh, Volras Stronghold. And I may as well loop this in with Time Spiral. Um, both of these cards I called in and around 25, um, calling for Time Spiral to hit 40 eventually and Stronghold to hit 50. Um, Stronghold's already hit 35, so that's good for 10 bucks a copy or a 40% gain. And Time Spiral has hit 35, which is also good for uh, 10 bucks a copy or about a 45% gain. Um, these are just fantastic high power cards from a classic era of magic about, you know, eight or 10 years into the game where, um, you know, the Urza's uh, saga block was just chock-a-block full of crazy combo cards. Um, and that entire era, those those two or three years of magic design um, have a lot to be uh, to be uh, account uh, or the design and develop, development teams had a lot to account for as standard uh ended up looking kind of like Legacy does today at one point. Um, and they're on the reserve list. They're super powerful. They end up in cubes and EDH decks. Um, and uh, it just seemed obvious to me looking at the inventory levels that they were going to continue their merry climb up the up the ladder. And lo and behold, they have. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, all those reserve list cards, really powerful ones were getting really spicy for a little while at one point. Uh, so I am not surprised at all that, you, you know, you, you made out well on both of these. All right, hit me with another one. Yep. Uh, next up was the Chain Veil. Um, this is one that uh, I unfortunately did not pick up on my own account uh, and ended up missing out on. Um, this was another earlier in the year call. It was like $1.50. I was like, hey, guys, this is really good with Planeswalkers. going to keep going up unless I reprint it. It's going to be popular in EDH, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then, again... How, oh, I feel like a broken record. Brain and Traxa. Uh, Traxa, especially with the proliferate, really pushed people to want to play Planeswalkers with that pl proliferate every turn. Um, and uh, somebody made a concerted effort to pick these copies up. Um, you know, Chain Veil was a buyout, but the price stuck. Uh, you know, five to six bucks right now. Um, and that's what they're selling for. That's what people are paying. So, uh, you know, it was, I would, it's almost, <clears throat> it was less, it was not an artificial price change. It was just a market correction. Uh, but clearly the demand is there um and if you had picked these up when i told you to and did as i say and not as i do uh you would have made a pretty healthy you know three to four dollars profit on every copy here we have a mythic somerset artifact that has a very unique effect interacting with planeswalkers um at a time when wizards is increasingly putting both story and um gameplay focus on planeswalkers um, you know, we're coming out of a year's worth of putting the Avengers together. And as we get to Amant Cat, we're almost certainly going to be seeing their, uh, the evil super team coming from the Nicol Bola side of things. So, you know, it was never uh, a mystery uh, to any of the people that were tracking this card that it was eventually going to move. I just thought we had more time. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody decided to pull the trigger a little early and it paid off. Yeah, I guess I also wouldn't have expected it to be, you know, six months later. I kind of had it on a mid to long term, but, uh, you know, you get one good catalyst on a casual card like this and you, you see a lot of demand move very quickly. Oh, what was next for you? All right. So one of the other big uh, dollar gainers, even if it wasn't a percentage uh, uh, 
a huge percentage winner was the foil uh, force of wills from EMA shortly after they were released they were available as low as 275 on TCG player and I said yeah slam dunk this is when you get in on these there's just not going to be very much of this product um, and they uh, peaked and and held $400 which is amazing um, when you think about the fact that EMA has was then later re-released, but the reality is that to find any particular foil rare in one of those boxes that was dropped on the market, like a a time delayed bomb uh, earlier this month, um, is pretty is pretty tough. Like you know, it might have added a few dozen uh, copies to the commercial uh, market spread out, out over many vendors, um, and that's only if people were actually popping the boxes. A lot of the the boxes that were bought closer to uh, or below uh, MSRP over the last month, I get the impression people are not are either cracking casually, in which case that inventory is kind of like withheld from the market, or they're being held in closets like you and I have. Um, uh, in which case, you know, there's, it explains why, um, you know, the preeminent foil of the set is still holding its price tag nice and high. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I remember this. And I remember finding one locally for like 220 and I was like out of town that weekend. I'm like, okay, just hang on. I'll be there in a couple of days to pick it up. And then the price jumped over the weekend. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> God, I'm not getting it now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I only managed to pick up a couple, and I hadn't checked in on the price for a while. I also had assumed that the the reprinting of EMA or the the subsequent re-release of EMA um, would have injured the price, but nope, it's holding nice and steady. I mean, part of this might be that I, I get the impression the demand for these has been pretty strong overseas. It's worth keeping in mind that EMA um, foils, some of these, these were the first time the foils had ever been available outside of a judge foil, and um, it was only printed in... Uh, in Chinese, Japanese, and English. So, um, you know, any other country um, probably got English stock um, and not too much of it. And so a lot of these kind of like higher end foils are spread out over, you know, a pretty diverse geographic base. And that's going to lead to a little bit more being siphoned off um, in overseas arbitrage than you would normally expect. Yeah, yep. I think think you hit the nail on the head when you said, uh, you know, this is a card that, you know, they re-release Eternal Masters, but how many are you actually adding to the market? There's just such an extremely limited supply um, that even a couple extra copies is not is not meaningful, basically. Well, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the non-foil versions of Force have been hit very hard. I mean, this was a $100 plus card for years, um, and now is closer to a $40 or $50 card um, in, in many cases. And... Uh, and, and is going to be slow to recover because legacy is just, you know, not driving the price as hard as it would have, say, three or four years ago. So um, I, th- I think that anybody who got their hands on foil copies is probably pretty pleased with where that that ended up. And I'm, I'm you know, hope that we were we were capable of contributing, you know, a hundred dollar bill to as many people as possible. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, this is the other point here is that as you see sort of eternal lasting format wane in popularity um, or, you know, kind of settle a little bit more like we've seen with Legacy is that the like, I need this card to play with type of thing is uh, is probably going to lose some steam like the Force of Wills. Uh, but the like real ultra premium versions of those cards might still hold their price tags pretty well because there's going to be that core group of dedicated players that still want to have the coolest version possible and will be willing to pay for it. Yep. Agreed. I should point out just a little caveat to correct myself. Um, I said it was a forty or fifty dollar card. It looks like it's rebounded into the, like the mid sixties at this point for Force of Will, but that's still significantly off its its peak pricing a year or two ago. Oh well, now I'm upset that you lied to me. <laughs> All right. So, what was uh, next on your list? 
Yeah, next on my list was uh, Needle Spires and Hissing Quagmire. Um, I called these back, uh, I don't know, when they were cheap. <laughs> they were they were about a dollar a piece. Uh, I was like, hey, these are man lands, dual lands. These always do well. They're at an all-time low. Uh, you know, they're not going to be $20, but you'll definitely see um, a price tag increase. Uh, and they climbed up to like 4 to $5. I think I think Hissing Quagmire might have peaked a little bit higher than that. Uh, and even Needle Spires still is like several dollars, I, I believe. Um so th- there was just you know that was just kind of a pretty, pretty clean, clear, like powerful man land dual land man lands in standard. They might be cheap now, but they won't be forever. And then they weren't. Um, and these were these are the type of card that I really like because even if the the dollar value isn't huge and the percentage is reasonable um you're still the what's great about these they they move you can sell these you know you can buy 200 of these and get and churn through them on ebay and tcg player because people need them you can contrast that with something like suchi or arborea which like you look like you did really well on paper but good luck actually getting rid of a copy so the cards that are slightly less exciting in terms of how much you sold or how much you made each copy but actually move uh this is this is right in that in that range um and those are always always very satisfying yeah they also this also occupies a a good uh you know mindscape for standard speculation where um targeting 50 cent to dollar rares that have the potential to be four or five dollar cards because if and when they're played they're going to be played as a play set and they have some you know uh backdrop casual demand that's likely to go on for years because in in this particular case uh, you know we don't get uh person lands all the time um, creature lands are a thing we get, you know, every five, six, seven years, something like that. So, um, you know, there's going to, going to be lingering demand even after these rotate out. And I was certainly able to unload five, six play sets of these at three ninety nine a piece, needle spires in particular, um, that had been picked up at about a dollar fifteen. So, um, you know, not a huge uh, gainer dollar wise, but very solid percentage wise. And those are the kind of packages you love sending out with your kind of like weekly mail batch. Yeah, and I really, and again, I really think that those are are what you want to focus on. It's fun to go, oh look, I earned you know three thousand percent on this spec. But if you can't sell them or you only picked up two, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's these types of cards that can actually make you a, a, a fair bit of pocket change that are are going to be the best for you long term. Yep. All right. All right. So, so what's next for you? So Jace Friends Prodigy was a card I called months and months ago at seventeen. Um, when it had rotated out and was hitting its, you know, its its local lows. Um, shortly thereafter, I said it was going to hit thirty. Lo and behold, it is at thirty. Um, in all fairness, uh, I was did not foresee Frontier at that point. This was me just saying that you know this was going to be a card that would eventually um, pick up on on either modern demand um, if it ever made its way out of like tier two, tier three Grixis decks and into the mainstream for modern. Um, or just on the back of like longer term casual cube EDH type demand because it's a card that's very hard to reprint. Um, I'm certainly extremely happy to see you know my 16, 17, 18 dollar copies suddenly worth ten dollars more inside five months. Um, uh, but the call was right for the wrong reason. Yeah, you know this is difficult. Or actually, I'm sorry, wrong term. This is a good lesson in that you can see how. When you're looking at your specs uh, and trying to decide what what to get in on, um, there's always this sort of like backdoor opportunity when you consider the really powerful cards or or, um, type of effect because even if you don't see – even if you don't 
end up calling it for the right reason. Um, sometimes things sneak up and uh, you hit it out of the park because of something you didn't see coming. But because it was a really powerful card, it's a great candidate for that going in. Um, like Jace, it's like, well, you didn't pick it because of Frontier. You picked it because of Modern. But you know that it's a strong card that does a lot. Um, and then it kind of gives you the opportunity that like, oh, if something happens that you weren't expecting, uh, this is a really this card is really good and is going to be well positioned possibly. Um, so you kind of get that advantage over like really ultra like niche or weird cards that are that are not necessarily going to benefit from those types of uh, instances nearly as much. I mean, there's some connective tissue between cards like Chromantic Lantern, Jace Friends Prodigy as a two mana planeswalker, Liliana of the Veil, you know, one of the top planeswalkers of all time. Um, these these are the kind of card Inquisition of Kozlex, another good example. These are cards of a sufficient power level that even when they see reprint, or in the case of a card like Jace or Liliana, they go through a dip because of um, reduced play patterns. There, you really need to start thinking hard when you see twenty dollars Jaces and fifty dollars Lilianas opportunities that have both existed in the last couple of years, um, because as you said, the the power level is just so high, and some of these cards are hard to reprint. Um, and in the case of cards like Inquisition of Kozilek and Chromantic Lantern, sometimes the demand exceeds the supply um, relatively easily if they're not put out in mainstream products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's something to keep in mind for you guys. Um, okay, it's my turn, right? Yep, hit it. My okay. So my next one is uh, non Origins Painlands. Um, so you remember Origins was the enemy pain lands like Battlefield Forge, but non-Origins ones are like a Darkar, Wastes, Brushland, uh, Sulphur Springs, etc. Um, this was a call uh, I, I picked these I picked up on these just before Eldrazi got really big in modern. Um, it was I believe the like the weekend of Oath of the Gate Watch or like a week or two before. Um, Maybe it was a week or two after. It was right around there, and uh, we just started to see the Eldrazi come out in Force and Modern, um, and right around the Pro Tour. Uh, and I was like, "Hey, uh, these are all suddenly on the table. There's a lot of printings, but there isn't a lot of supply. They're going to be really good if Eldrazi are this good in Modern." Um, and across, they, you know, they were dirt cheap at the time. They had never been good in the history of Magic, basically. Uh, so there was, I think, there was a little bit of eye rolling from a lot of people involved, and not just at me, but just in general, the idea that Painlands could be useful. Um, I remember when they started to spike, everyone was like, "Oh my God, this is." Like, <laughs> this is Christmas in February, second Christmas for a lot of people who just had piles of these things sitting yeah. around because, you know, it's just sitting in their bulk. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them moved. A Brushland is like 8 or $10. A Darkar Waste was like 15 or 18 for a while while Drazi um, was still legal or Iwugan was still legal, legal. So, you know, in this case, I felt like I really picked up on – uh, the, where Eldrazi was going very rapidly. And rather than focus on the, um, easily identifiable parts of that strategy, I was like, you know, don't look at the recently printed rare. Look at the, you know, the, the, this foundational piece of what that deck will need, um, that's got much, much lower supply. And that's where you're going to want to turn your attention. And one of the keys here was that the most recent printing was 10th edition, was, which was actually quite a few years ago. And, and if you had asked me, you know, previous to that whole happenstance, um, I would have guessed it was sooner because it felt like we had gotten the other set of pain lands um, for like two or three years running. 
Um, and it just felt like there must be a plethora of all of the pain lands in the market. But the reality was that the other half of that set um, hadn't seen printing in quite some time. And, you know, I was happy to have this windfall, you know, come out of the sky, as were many of the people that are holding bulk. I, I had tons of these in my collections because, you know, in the case of Adekar Waste, there was 10th edition version, a 6th edition, a 7th edition, Ice Age had these, 5th edition, 9th edition, like they were in play print for quite some time and then it just stopped dead and we haven't seen them since. And I suspect we will see them in the next few years yet again. Um, but, you know, getting out on Atacar Waste at like plus eight or nine dollars per useless copy was just ridiculous last winter. I, I have a feeling that a lot of LGSs had their rent for like the year paid on this because they could have had so many copies and seen such a humongous upturn in price, especially selling to a local meta metagame that kind of like you didn't know necessarily the writing was on the wall, but you knew that Eldra you needed to get in on the Eldrazi train fast. Uh, so, you know, they, they might've been able to sell these at kind of a higher price point to players that needed their copies really quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is, this is wild. I, I question the absorption. Like I think they could, you know, maybe a, a big LGS could pay rent for a month on the back of, of the pain lands when they were running hot, but it's sometimes it's kind of tough at, at any normal LGS that's not star city or channel fireball to move, say, you know, two or 300 copies of, uh, of a card, even if it's being sold in play, in hot play sets. Um, it's just like you, you need to, a lot of players, uh, especially players that are playing in formats like modern already have kind of their deck of choice. And this kind of movement doesn't really ripple through that part of the player base because they don't switch, you know, right overnight. The more spikier players that are trying to win tournaments certainly do, um, engage in that kind of deck switching, you know, week to week, month to month. Um, but I, I suspect that in most LGSs, there's there's slightly fewer of them than they would like in these situations. Well, you, so you, maybe you get rid of a playset or two, three, maybe four locally, but then they can still sell them online, right? Sure. Uh, I I mean, the, the maximum amount of inventory of any given card on TCG at any given moment is usually something like a thousand copies. And then more commonly, it's more like three or four hundred copies, even for brand new rares and a new sets. So... But certainly anybody who was dragging bulk around in the back of uh, trucks um, in the last couple of years um, <laughs> probably had a, a, a vivacious weekend with their friends digging through uh, bulk boxes trying to pull these things out as fast as they could find them. Are you telling me that you drive around with bulk in your trunk? Nope, not I. I mean, the only copies I got to pull out were out of my own collection, and then I happened to have all of these sitting around in the super collection. So that was another 50 or 60 copies, and I just went ahead and outed them on Puka Trade and turned them into big dollar cards as fast as I could. Yeah, I mean, that was the way to do it, for sure. Um, okay, let's see, where are we? And I think it is your turn. Let me buzz through a few standard picks that, uh, standard slash modern picks that did well. Um, I called out Grim Flare Foils ahead of the game, um, said they were going to go from 30 to 60. They peaked at 55. They've since fallen back in the 30 to $35 range, but, um, and to, uh, peak any higher, uh, and get back into that 50 to $60 range, they're going to have to, um, continue to get C play in modern, which for now seems like it may be a question mark. Um, but there was certainly an opportunity to get out at the right time there. Um, I also called Selfless Spirit Foils early on when they were available at 7 or $8, um, calling for them to get to 15 and they're currently holding 18 so that was a good one. Um, uh, also called Blessed Alliance Foils out of EMN as a modern playable um, at $4 to go to 10 and lo and behold, they're at 10 um, Called Etherworks Marvel Foils out of Kaladesh at $10 right off the bat um, to go to 20 and they're sitting at $30. Um, that's a very nice one. Um, 
and uh, also called uh, Thing in the Ice to get from uh, $4 to $8, and that is exactly where it's sitting. So I'm um, feeling pretty good about the analysis skills on all of those. Yeah, it was certainly a, uh, a healthy array of, uh, of targets there. Are there any in particular that stand out to you as something you were proud of or were excited to see? Well, I think a theme that has definitely been kind of core to where I'm making money in Magic over the last, say, 12 to 18 months has been identifying strong standard cards that have modern playability slightly ahead of the curve. And it usually doesn't mean that I'm the one testing these two um, their max potential and then making the call that this is going to be a thing. It's about making sure that you're reading everybody's articles and paying attention to the biggest brewers in the industry and reading them critically and trying to read between the lines and figure out what uh, you know other people are going to pick up on and what themes or portions of deck shells are going are, are likely to make a run at success. Um, you know, I was able to do that with Jace Vince Prodigy foils, with Collected Company foils, with Selfless Spirit foils, Blessed Alliance foils, also with Collected Brutality, although it didn't end up on this list. Um, and it's really just about saying, you, at peak supply, is this card going to be fantastic in a major format down the road um, where it's got legs beyond standard? And if the answer is yes, whether it's EDH or modern, um, or something new that's coming down the pipe that gets bigger like Frontier, um, you know, you want to be on top of your game uh, at those moments. If, if you can even be a few weeks ahead of the curve, it will make all the difference in your spec potential. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a very fair, fair and valid point. Um, okay, so I guess that puts me on my best pick of the year. Uh, I did not realize that this is what it was when I started doing this. Um, but a while ago, uh, I called out Realms Uncharted was about a quarter at the time, quarter to 50 cents, 40 cents. It was real cheap. Um, and then uh, Get Rug Monster happened, and the price jumped to $3, which ended up being like an 1,100% gain. Um, this is probably, you know, this is a good contrast to like the Needle Spires and Hissing Quagmires is the percentage on this is ridiculous. Um, but these are, you know, move a lot slower than... Uh, those those needle spires and hissing quagmires, you're really only selling one at a time. The shipping, you know, the the, the cost of a stamp matters a lot more against a, a three dollar card than it does a you know ten or twenty dollar playset. Um, so you know, not necessarily the card that was most capable of earning you the money, but certainly the largest jump between what you could have bought it for and uh, what it ended up settling at. Yeah, that was a cool one, and it's interesting that you're percentage-wise, that's the most impressive. Dollar-wise, I think doubling season is probably uh, the one that made people the most money. Um, it made me the most money. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, similarly, I think the the pick, the, the best combination of percentage gain and raw dollar gain that I threw out there this year was probably Nahiri the Harbinger when she was available at $10, um, suggesting people go pretty deep on those. And, you know, I said she was going to probably move from 10 to 20. Instead, she moved from 10 to a peak of 40. Um, and even if you were outing at 30, you were putting a $20 bill in your pocket for every copy you bought when I told you to. Um, that's a potentially 250%, 300% gain on a standard legal mythic um, inside six months of purchase. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't argue with you on that one, that's for sure. Um, a couple of other just ones just to clean up my list. Uh, called Traverse the Uvenwald at a dollar to get to five. It made it to four and holds it pretty steadily. Um also called Mantis Rider Foils um, from Konzatar Kier to make a move from 3 to 10. They're currently holding 6, so that's a nice double up. 
um, although of course you're getting out a little less than that after fees, called Pyroblast Foils at 35 to make it to 50, and they made it to 70. However, um, as it's a foil uncommon and not a rare or a mythic, it is now back down to $10 after the re-release of EMA. Um, so mm-hmm. hopefully you didn't hold on to those too long. Yeah, those are, they got a lot of that type of thing, those kind of foils and whatnot that uh, were easy to sort of forget about, um, but then, uh, you know, really came out um, and, and did pretty well on the back end. Those are, those are tricky to keep up on. You really have to be paying attention to, to make out on those. And I think the, the key factor that everybody needs to be aware of with these foils is that when you're talking about foil mythics, even if the set is brand new, there really just aren't that many of them in the market. Like, there might be a few hundred tops at peak supply between all available vendors. And I'm talking eBay, Amazon, TCG Player, all of the online, you know, tier two stores, um, everything that we've got listed on MTG Price. A foil mythic, just there just aren't that many of them per box, per case. And, and if the card is super um, popular for whatever reason, either it's a, a critical foil in EDH or it's a, a four of playset in modern, um, people are going to have trouble keeping those in stock. They're going to have trouble restocking them if, if they're a card that everybody wants to hold on to. I mean, there were, there have been times when people, stores just couldn't keep cards like Aetherworks Marble or Snapcaster Mage or Liliana or Jace Friends Prodigy in the case long enough to be able to offer them for sale you know, more than five minutes every day. I mean, they, somebody would bring in a collection, they'd buy it and immediately sell it again 20 minutes later. And then, you know, that slot would be empty in the case for days on end because sometimes demand just outstrips supply no matter, you know, how recently something's been printed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, completely agree. All right, um, let's, let's, make, start, make, let's start making fun of ourselves. We've uh, oh, yeah, humble-bragged long that enough. <laughs> let, 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 let's trade punches. Let's, let's make fun of each other on this one. This will be more fun. So, um, I, 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 re- I remember being very dubious about Arlen Cord doing very well. Um, and uh, in all fairness, she hasn't really tanked very hard. And this is one of the things about getting in on Planeswalkers in between 5 and $10 is that if they're not Tybalt, they have a pretty good chance of uh, holding over 5 um, even if they see no play. Um, casual demand uh, is often enough, seeing as how Planeswalkers are always mythics, um, to keep them uh, relatively steady. And so the downside is usually uh, limited compared to the potential upside. You know, we, we talked about my Nahiri pick going from 10 to 40 at one point. Um, uh, you, you can't go too far wrong if you wanted to fool around with Arlen Cord in a deck because she's only fallen from 10 to $7. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I guess it was, I don't want to say it was sketchy, but it clearly wasn't, I don't know. I don't feel, I don't feel bad about it. I mean, it's a flip planeswalker. It's really powerful. When, when this was spoiled, everyone was like, holy crap, this thing is ridiculous. It's so powerful. There was a lot, there was a lot of legitimate excitement about the power level of this card. It just, I I don't know. It just went nowhere. Listen, I thought there was going to be a werewolf deck too, and it just didn't happen. Oh, rip me. All right. All right. Uh, uh, make fun of make fun of one of mine. Let's see where where okay. So wait, you have this formatted. So I'm having trouble. Like wait, so what is this? So I'm looking at Eye of Ugin and I see a seventy and a one fifty. Wait, did you call it at one fifty? Yeah, yeah. So I I said it was gonna, it was going to go from seventy to one fifty. Ah, uh, and it's it's at like forty or fifty bucks. Oh yeah. Well, okay. So this is this is an example of uh, of James perhaps overvaluing the expeditions character, um, which I think has surprised all of us, uh, everyone out there, by just how kind of flat the expeditions have ended up. Even really a downturn. Um, they just 
in general have have not done anywhere near what any of us thought was going to happen. Yeah, that all true. That, that doesn't quite cut to my bone as deep as it well, should because you don't have well, the, but, but you don't have the full context. So let me let me explain. Didn't you didn't you call this after it was banned? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's the second part of the story. So let's 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 tell this tale like a Coen Brothers movie. I, so I, wait, after, so I just wanted to go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Right, after go ahead. it's banned, I call it for like the second time. The second time I say, well, yeah, it's banned and it's not going to get played in modern anymore, but it still gets played in Legacy, and Legacy's doing fine, uh, and it's a big deck there now. And it might even be playable in, in vintage decks where Eldrazi decks have shown up. So if you get in at 70, you'll probably get out at 150 later. And, and here we are with it at 45. So already <laughs> a bad pick, right? But it gets worse because that's not the whole story. The whole story is I originally called this back when it was um, well under uh, current pricing, uh, just as Eldrazi was taking off. And I said, you got to gra- jump these on these right now. They're going to be huge. And they were huge. They went to $220, $230 a copy at one point. They were the most valuable expedition for a while, um, short of maybe Scalding Tarn and Polluted Delta. Um, and I was holding eight of them and, <laughs> and sold zero before it got banned <laughs> because I forgot they were in the closet. So not only is it one of my worst picks of the year, it's one of my worst moves of the year. And it, and it was wrong twice. I, I was originally correct and then wrong twice, both at the opportunity to get out and then the opportunity to get in again when I picked up some more copies at 70 following my own advice and they're now down to 45. Your, uh, your girlfriend here, you say that out loud, just realize how <laughs> yeah. much. <laughs> does, does she still want to be friends? Yeah, like does she know, does she know what just happened here? That was, <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> yeah, I've cost my child some, some of her childhood, her future education fund, so... Uh, all right, all right. Well, what do you got? Uh, for, what do you uh, got for me? Here? A big, a big mistake. Um, all right. So, you also called out. Let's see. Uh, you called Obnixilis, uh, another planeswalker. I felt I remember feeling dubious about um, when he was at five dollars. You know, a reasonable pick. I think you said it might hit. You know, eight to ten dollars. Um, and instead, we see him at three fifty, and probably very unlikely to recover. The issue here seems to have been that Obnixilis has been has seen consistent play since he was released, um, but because he was a fall set mythic and he's only usually a one or a two of between main and sideboard, he just hasn't had enough momentum across enough different decks for him to see you know the ten dollar plus price point he maybe would have deserved in another version of the format. Well, I, I, I so I can be even a little more specific here. I don't think that the issue was that uh it was bad of a call i think the issue was it ended up in the dual deck which i didn't consider when i first talked about this and that's what got me i think so i was expecting uh you know i I was like okay this can go up uh because of you know x y and z it's not that big of a deal but like you know from five it could double and then it was like oh no actually it just got reprinted and that just crushed me yeah and, and dual decks, the lesson there is that dual decks are a death knell. Um, if your planeswalker, your planeswalker spec shows up in a dual deck in the spring, it is not a good move. Right. So so not, not that this makes it really any better for me, but it does at least give you an idea of <laughs> how we ended up there. <laughs> yeah. So these next, two, these next two picks we made are both bad, um, but both were kind of beyond our control. Um, so hit, hit. Punch me in the face over my Mana Crypt foil prediction. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, I feel like this is, well, I mean, it's not the train wreck apparently that I of Ugin was for you, uh, but it does seem like it's in the similar, um, a similar position is, is you're like, yeah, I, I'm going to, I like this foil. It's really, it's a, the first time the card's basically ever been in foil. It's really unique, really rare. Uh, you know, let's get it at these at 225 um, because, you know, this could be a four or $500 card eventually, at least, if not 300, possibly even more. Uh, and then it was just like, Oh, by the way, here's masterpieces and here's an even better monocrypt. And it was like better art, better border, just across the board, a better card. And, and it's like, oh, now there's a ton of these, whereas there was like, no, I'm sorry, there were judges, just judges before. So, I mean, really, you just, you, 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 it's, it's almost, almost worth staying out of the way of cards this expensive when they're reprintable because it's like, man, if you get hit, you get nailed really hard. I, I never saw this coming. As a marketing pro, the, the concept that you would take an iconic card like Mana Crypt that had been extremely limited in foil up until 2016 and then print it not once but twice as a foil during that year, within four months of of the the first printing in EMA, to then in Kaladesh print it yet again blew my mind. I, I did not see that coming. I thought for sure that was not going to happen. Um, even when I knew masterpieces were coming i didn't think that this card would be included i thought it was automatically on the sidelines because we had literally just got it um and you know this was one of the lessons this year is that these kind of like logical well they just gave it to us so they can't gave it to us again um you know those kind of uh, of uh logic statements are no longer reliable um they they have proven time and again this year that things that we thought were you know uh, bulwarks of the uh, magic finance trade uh you know, may need a second or third glance uh, with a critical eye and when we're considering what might happen. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I don't think that was on our list, but that's definitely something that has come up on multiple occasions is this sort of like, well, it was just printed and they won't print it again and then they do it twice after. And it's like, oh, geez, I guess, uh, guess that's not really a hard and fast rule anymore. Yeah, so on your similar pick of the year has to be these EMA boxes you picked up. And I remember us in the summer scheming around, you know, back and forth on chat about where we were going to get them and what we were going to pay for them and, you know, what we what, what we wanted to get English ones for and whether Japanese was the better bet. And uh, how much of these, did, how many of these did you end up with? Um, I think I have three. I think I have three total. No, maybe it's five. It's three or five. And I can still kind of mostly wipe my brow because three of them are Japanese, which is at least more rare. Although I think I ended up with two English ones that I paid like two and a quarter or two twenty four. So that's not, not ideal. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that the, even in the re during the first pass in the summer, um, when they told us it was a limited release and we all rightfully assumed that it was going to be the only time it was ever put out through the distribution chain and to LGSs only, um, the Japanese boxes were only sold to Japanese stores. And as part of their agreement with Wizards, they're not allowed to sell them direct online overseas. Um, so some boxes were leaking through the pipeline, but generally in the $350 to $400 range, you know, um, you know, expatriates from the US or other English-speaking countries that happen to be living in Japan and played Magic tended to go around and pick up a couple of boxes in their neighborhood and then sell them online to people they knew. Um, you know, I picked up a couple as well, uh, along the way, I think in and around 340 or so, and thought that they would be a very solid hold long-term expecting them to be six or $700 boxes. 
And then all of a sudden, six months later, they say, ah, you know, sales are kind of flagging. We've got some of this excess inventory off the presses that we never managed to flow through the distribution chain. So we're just going to go ahead and take this limited release product and put it out again. Um, and not only are we going to put out the English boxes in the English speaking market, but we're going to give all the, the vendors that we offer them to the opportunity to have a couple of boxes of Japanese as well. So all of a sudden, Japanese boxes flooded in onto eBay, and I was able to pick them up significantly below, like you know, $100 below what we were picking them up for before. And I think that English boxes got as low as like 155 or 160 and I picked up some Japanese in and around 180 um, and felt pretty comfortable. I mean, the dollar cost averaging on these is still not bad, and we'll see how it plays out over time. But I think that this one is going to end up in the closet for a few years before we get to see any gains. Yeah, yeah, these are these are just going to hang out there for a while because it's going to take some time before you know sealed product never moves fast uh, up. It will move fast down, but not up. So that's where uh, yeah, that's where we are for the time being. I mean, on the on the plus side, the lowest priced buy it now. Is now back up to 240 for Japanese, so they're already up 60 bucks since I bought them last month, um, and there's not that much inventory under 400. So I, you know, it, it's possible that this stuff was absorbed fast enough at the at the really appealing sub 200 pricing that, um, and a lot of it got torn open because people were excited. You know, at that price point, people felt like they could do that. You know, that was like 60 bucks below MSRP. So you know, you know, maybe it'll be faster than we think. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it couldn't be much worse. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Uh, James picked out Deploy the Gatewatch. He called it at three and a quarter, said it was going to be an $8 mythic from three and a quarter to <laughs> $8. It is now sitting at four seventy five by the looks of it for a solid dollar fifty gain on a 325 call. Uh, I mean, no, I no, guess. In- no, 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 no. That. 475 would have been what you would have gained if it had hit $8. The card, oh. the card is currently available for less than a dollar. Oh, okay. So you called it a three and a quarter and is now under a dollar. All right. So that was, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, the thing, I, I like the idea of this card. And uh, I know Doug Johnson um, is a really big fan of it as well. And I do think that there are legs on this card in the long term. But, you know, three and a quarter for a mythic that's at like 0% play in standard and uh, still fringes in modern era, uh, you know, EDHs. It's a little early, I, I think, maybe. I was way early. Um, I, I made a bet with Cliff that this was going to top eight a tournament within the year on the basis that I thought they were going really hard at the Planeswalker theme um, vis-a-vis the Gatewatch and that they were positioning this to be in a Super Friends deck in Standard. Um, it's still possible that that will be true, um, although I think the, the reality, given how fast Standard is right now, is that um, we probably will get a Super Friends deck um, moving into the next block, maybe even two of them, one with the good guys and one with the bad guys. But it's not clear that any of them are going to be slow enough decks in general that they're going to want this card, and if they want it... Um, Will that justify any kind of a reasonable price spike, given that maybe they're only playing two copies and um, it's the only deck that's playing it? I mean, one of the things I definitely overlooked in terms of how soon to get in on it was that it's so specific. Um, And those kind of unique effects are what makes really cheap bulk cards great long-term plays, but they can also make them really weak for standard um, gains because... What you're really looking for is a smuggler's copper, you know, the kind of card that's going to show up in four different archetypes in, in week one of the format as a four of. Um, you're not looking for the rando two of that only exists in one of the decks and that deck is on the fringes. Um, 
So, I mean, now that it's down under a dollar, I like this card again. And I've been picking up foils at $3 because they just seem like slam dunks for EDH down the road. Oh, man, you're setting us up for 2017. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so so go ahead. What's what's yeah. the last one on your list for one, me? One here? last caveat on, on Deploy the Gatewatch. Oh, sorry. It, go actually, ahead, go ahead. it actually got played at the Star City Games Invitational in a Road Modern deck um, and went two and one. Uh, against some of the best players on the SCG circuit. So uh, it's possible this is, in fact, a modern card. Um, uh, on, the, on, on the extreme fringes of modern, along with most of the components of uh, Lantern and, uh, like Lantern of Insight in uh, you know that deck, but I, I haven't lost hope yet. Well, uh, that's good. I guess you're, you know, you're, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I don't have a a box of shame or a box of failures. Um, I have specs that just haven't gotten there yet. That's my <laughs> my way of thinking. It. They're just you know they're still maturing. We'll get there. So, we'll get so, there though. So the only box I have that I ha- that I have no choice but to label the box of shame is the one that's for standard specs that have no likelihood of success in ID- EDH casual or anything else. You know, like the yeah, I threw the, those out, so I don't have them in my house. <laughs> <laughs> you get those like standard rares that never really get anywhere, and you know are going to be forgotten for ten years. Um, that's that's the most shameful for me. Nope, don't know what you're talking about. Don't have any of this. All right, so <laughs> I don't have battlefield thaumaturges or uh, or God, what was some of the other ones? I had a couple that were were real good. <laughs> so your last worst pick is actually shared. Um, you know, we were basically holding hands when you made this pick because I called it twice during the year as well, and I was wrong at every point, and so were you. Um, we've all called Kozilek the Great Distortion when it was at like seven dollars to get up there somewhere. Um, assuming that it would make its way into some crazy control shell where it was, um, you know, finishing games by countering everything they cast and locking them out of the game prison style. And as it turned out, between Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger and Worldbreaker and then later Emrakul the Promised End and on the back of Etherworks Marvel, any giant creature that didn't basically just end the game as it came into play um, just wasn't good enough to see, see play in standard and nobody's put forth any kind of sexy brew for this in casual circles either. And so the card has sunk down to like $3, $3.50, and looks like it's going to be stuck there for a while. Can you, um, I mean, so when we were talking about this, like, Emrakul wasn't quite out yet, I think, when we originally Correct. talked yeah, about yeah. this. You, th- so I don't feel as bad as I could. Yeah, these were winter picks, and we were just saying, you know, th- this card is a lot more powerful than people are giving it credit for. Um, if you've got a full hand, you get a full hand of cards when it comes into play, and then you can use those cards to counter a bunch of stuff just by discarding them. Um, it's a 12-12 menace. It can end games. But it just turned out that there was other bigger, badder stuff that was, you know, more central to the format. Yeah, I mean, you 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 couldn't have known that Emrakul was going to be that, right? Like, that it was going to be, I mean, according to some of the standard players, uh, the, some of the standard pros who play standard, uh, one of the worst designed cards in standard in years. <laughs> so, and, and enabled uh, by Etherworks Marvel, a card that nobody would... If you had told people to make a list of cards that was coming in Kaladesh, Etherworks Marvel would never have been on that list. Yeah, they just printed Emrakul. Do you think they're going to print a card that lets you cast him for free on turn four in standard? Oh, well, yeah, sure, definitely. I mean... My answer would have been no on the basis, simple basis that Emrakul already had graveyard-based cost reduction built in. Um, it didn't seem like the kind of thing that, that needed a support card to get him into play faster. Um, you know, the green-black Delirium decks run Emrakul and, and don't have any need for Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, well, 
Uh, yeah, I apologize if you bought Coslex. I own a bunch too, but fear not. I am still holding on to them. I don't think this is dead. I think it's just put off, and I hopefully it will get there eventually. Hopefully. Um, but James's final one for uh, for the year here is Foil Eldritch Evolutions, which he called at 15 to go to 30 and it looks like it's about 10 to $11 right now. Not even, like uh, $7, $8. Oh God! Is it that cheap on TCG Player, like low yeah. or something? Yeah. I see. This is. It's hard for me to give you a really hard time about this because, like, you you know, you hit it out of the park with those collected companies, and I look at the Eldritch Evolution. I was like, this seems like a really powerful card that can do a lot, and then it just didn't do, hasn't gone anywhere. It's really it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like Arlen Cord is that you're like, man, this is such a powerful card. How did this just not end up seeing any play? I mean, it had a brief moment where Jeff Hoogland started pulling, uh, showing up with uh, uh, Kiki Chord style decks um, with Eldritch Evolution, um, where he was kind of fooling around with, is it Court of Calling he wants in the deck? Is it Eldritch Evolution? Is it Collected Company? Is it some combination of those three cards? Um, and in the end, it just didn't end up being that that deck was where you wanted to be in modern um, heading into the fall. And it just kind of fell off the radar and it's been sinking ever since. And the interesting thing here is that this is from Eldritch Moon, a, a set that was, you know, very profitable for me on other foil rares. Um, and had I had, you know, and even Blessed Alliance, which is an uncommon, not a rare, people forget um, that in that cycle, Blessed Alliance is oddly an uncommon, while Collective Brutality is a, is a rare. Um, but both of those foils did way better for me than Eldritch Evolution did. Um, I just think I'm ahead of the, uh, was was too far ahead of the curve here. Like 15 seemed very reasonable for something that could still end up being a, a four of playset foil rare and modern. Um, now that you can get them at seven or eight bucks, I'm I'm even more behind the card. Yeah, <laughs> uh, what is that? Something about sunk cost? I wouldn't worry about doubling, it. Doubling doubling down, doubling down while you're in the casino. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, all right, do you have anything you want to talk about on our best and worst list here? I guess I will point out that you know we're laughing about uh, what we've what we've missed and everything like that. But I would like to think that um, you know even if you had picked up everything that we told you to avoid or everything, even if you picked up everything that we ended up tanking, um, you know nothing here lost that much value. I mean, I guess close like you lost a couple bucks a copy, but that was only negative fifty percent, which is the worst of all of our options here, pretty much. Um, whereas you know the gains are in the you know the lowest thing that I talked about here that would have made you money was one hundred thirty three, uh, and most of the stuff was in like two, three, four hundred percent gain. So uh, you know over the over the board, if you had bought an even dollar value, I guess, of everything, you definitely were up over time than down. Yeah, it's interesting because I went, I mean, we cherry picked the best and the worst here, obviously. Um, but as I went through the dozens and dozens of picks um, th- that I made during the year, a lot of the ones that I made long term just haven't had time to mature yet. Like, it's just not the right time yeah. for them. A lot of the stuff that's in my portfolio is aimed at a two, three, four year horizon. Um, it's aimed at future formats and future demand patterns. Um, and so I didn't really include those in, in these estimates. What I was really looking for was where did I tell you guys that you could make money this year on a card to get in and get out um, within the span of 2016 where I failed you? And, and where did I really give you guys a great opportunity to you know make uh, playing the game of Magic cheaper or give you an opportunity to really make some coin and spend it on stuff that you need? Um, and I think we did a pretty good job overall. Yeah, I would like to think so. You know, I don't I don't get anything out of telling you guys, I guess, what cards to buy. I mean, I do it. I, I do it because I think people can make use of that information. So, 
uh, you know, it, it's definitely in my best interest if you're all successful at this. Um, and, and I'm in the same boat as you. I also have a bunch of cards that I didn't bring up that didn't see much of a gain, but that's because they weren't intended to be gainers at this point either. It's probably also worthwhile to reiterate, since we rarely um, talk about it, that we will never, we've already made an agreement between the two of us that we will not hype cards for the sake of hyping cards. Um, I.e., we won't buy a card, then tell you to buy it after the fact so that our copies go up. When we're basically, when you listen to a podcast and you hear us call out a pick, it's because that's a pick that's on our agenda to purchase that week, or we have just purchased, or we're about to purchase. Like we're right there in the it, beside you in the car, heading towards the potential car crash or the great jump over the chasm, and you know we consider ourselves to be in it together. Um, you know our reputations are on the line, and we want to make sure you guys know that we you know we work, work hard to do this research and to keep up to speed on everything and to try to call things out uh, ahead of the curve a little bit. And, uh, you know, where, where you lost money, we probably lost money too. And where you made, you know, we made it together. So, uh, hopefully that, uh, gives you some peace of mind. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, that's kind of a tricky line for us to walk at some point sometimes too, because it's one of those things where, um, we, it's like, well, if we, if we own the card and we tell you about it, then we're pumping our own card. And if we don't own the card, then we don't have any skin in the game. So, uh, you know, clearly we're just making stuff up. So, you know, sometimes I feel like there's no right answer for us, but yeah, I mean, any card that I'm telling you that I think has a chance to go up, I am like, is on my list of things to consider buying. And the only times that I don't own them are when I just haven't bought any cards recently. So I haven't made a point of adding them to a cart. Um, especially some of those longer gainers that aren't. So a lot of the cards that I talk about, like, Oh, this is a long-term card. I end up being really bad about picking up because there's no like impetus and time to do it. Uh, and I just forget, um, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, it's 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 one of those things where it's hard sometimes to. I, I don't know whether if people want its own copies or not own copies or what. Um, but you know, we we I, you know what James said is correct. We're we're in it with you guys. Yeah, I think I think my position on this has always been uh, the only good way to do this is transparency and full exposure. So. Um, if we own it, we tell you. If we don't, we tell you. And um, we tell you what our rating is on a one to ten scale. So, because not all specs are created equal, some some weeks worth of specs are weaker or stronger than others. Um, and we try to you know rate that for you guys. And it's also important that you you know consider all of these these opportunities in the context of your own situation. How much money you have, how much you have to lose, what good ideas you have, and whether they're better or worse than ours. Um, you know, what formats you're playing the most that you have the most expertise in and how much time you have to spend, you know, buying and, and selling cards every week. Um, so you, you need to keep all of that in mind. Yeah, all right. yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's uh, move on to the lessons of 2016, things that defined MTG Finance and Magic the Gathering as a game throughout this year and uh, that have given us things to think about as we head into our speculation uh, in 2017. Yeah. Um, what, what, okay. What was, the the, what was the theme that jumped out at you as kind of defining this year's for Magic and Magic Finance? Um. Geez. You know, we've got several that are up front. I guess the one that has sort of, um, I guess, felt like it had the most direct impact, perhaps, uh, was the fact that you know premium cards are really are are really getting saturated. You know, we saw. Um, Conspiracy to Eternal Masters. Uh, the masterpieces are now going to be permanent. 
Um, there's just a lot of that stuff around where in years past it didn't exist or it existed in much less frequency. So we've already seen a lot of those cards, again, like the Expeditions and the EMA foils, um, not do nearly as well as they might have in the past. Um, and, you know, there's several factors there. One is that there's a lot more of that stuff available than there used to be. Uh, another is that the growth of the game has slowed a little bit. Um, and the foil, <clears throat> the foil margin has narrowed compared to what it used to be in the past. But, um, you know, that sort of really major shift in, you know, these sort of like blue chip uh, modern or not modern, but magic staples like these very expensive, but should do well over time cards has, has really faltered, which is, um, I think, kind of shaken, shaken me up just a little bit because it's it's I have to be a lot more uh I have to pay a lot more attention now with what I'm doing. It's not like I can go, oh, yeah, this is an expensive card. It'll get more expensive and then be done with it. You know, I have to think more about this type of thing now. I think at the center of that discussion is the addition of Eternal Masters to the the already present three year three year uh, or three editions over six years worth of modern masters printings where we got premium level modern cards and modern foils um, handed to us on a platter. And then followed up with Eternal Masters, where they gave us a bunch of foils that some of which we already had and some of which we had never had before. And then immediately followed up with the with the Kaladesh masterpieces on the, the back of the um, Battle for Zendikar expeditions. And then announced that the masterpieces were going to be ever-present, that they were going to be um, put out a different set of masterpiece cards, high-end premium foils, um, set up as lottery tickets in all standard legal sets for the foreseeable future. And my concern there is that not only are we in an era where we're getting more and more magic product because, you know, the general um, discussion has been that, um, you know, the player growth has leveled off in the last few years after, you know, somewhere around Return to Ravening or Theros. Um, the four, three or four years leading up to those blocks, we see a lot of player growth, you know, the, the potential doubling of players across the globe playing the game. And now it's more like single percentage, single digit percentage gains in player growth. And so Wizard says and Hasbro say, you know, we're planning out the financials for the year. We got to do something about this. We got to keep revenues and profits growing. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to try to get uh, a higher uh, average revenue per user. We're going to try to get the average magic player to spend more money on the game by putting more money into more products. And to a certain extent, that's worked. A lot of these products have sold well, but the problem is that their money is spread out over those products and there are very few lulls. It used to be that there, there were two or three month gaps in a couple of places in the year where people could turn their attention to pimping out an EDH deck or pimping out a modern deck uh, or pimping out a legacy deck or figuring out some kind of cool casual deck they wanted to throw together um, on the back of, um, you know, not really having new product to think about. And so, you know, they would come up with their own ways to keep busy and spend money. And at this point, we're, we're just hitting them with so many, such a flurry of products throughout the year that um, very rarely is the budget of the average Magic player idle. And, and when it's not idle, I think that explain when you have low player growth and not a lot of spare cash on in, in the, the wallets of your average Magic player, that's how you explain um, that Expeditions and Masterpieces, you know, haven't really gone anywhere in price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's a new world out there, I think, in some regards on this uh, for a lot of us who've been around for a long time. Um, I mean, how about you? What is what has struck you this year as kind of an, an outstanding narrative? 
Well, one of the the themes that has been, I think, has really kind of sunk into the zeitgeist of the magic community is that reprints are are killing magic finance. Um, and this one is interesting to me because I vehemently deny that that's true. Um, uh, you and I do this, you know, week after week, and we're listing, you know, ten, you know, six to fifteen cards a week that are spiking fifty percent plus. So we know just from looking at the numbers that literally hundreds of cards per year are spiking. Um, and spiking in such a meaningful, uh, to such a meaningful degree that they can, that magic finance is quite clearly alive and well. Um, and there's no denying that we have seen an uptick in the number of reprints. You know, we talked earlier in the episode about mana crypt seeing two foil printings in the same year. Um, and pretty much every product that comes out now tends to have a sprinkling of meaningful reprints in it. Um, and certainly the ever presence of something like the Masterpiece series is going to um, hold back the prices on some cards because we've now kind of run out of the premium lands and premium artifacts and everything else they print from here on out, whether it's creatures or instants or sorceries or enchantments or planeswalkers, um, is going to be a downgrade from that. I mean, they, they did the two best things first um, that had the, the greatest universal appeal. And so, you know, I think all of that is going to does provide some kind of downward pull on the potential of certain classes of cards. But the reality is that out of the you know tens of thousands of magic cards that have been printed, a very small percentage of them are reprinted at any given year. And I can I can tell you from going over the numbers in my own portfolio over the last couple of years that though I've, I have been hit here or there by a reprint, um, you t if you have a broad-based portfolio, you tend to dodge reprint risk pretty handily. And in the case of some cards, like we talked about with Chromatic Lantern or Inquisition of Kozilek, they, re they rebound so quickly if they're in supplemental sets that um, it, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, you, you see a 10% drop in Apple for a couple months. If you're a long-term investor on a 20-year horizon, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it is. It's been interesting to see how this discussion has played out, um, both like kind of the reality of it and uh, and what and what people seem to think is going on. There are more reprints, and um, some cards are getting slashed, but uh, but you know half of them are cards that nobody was really in the market on anyways. And if they were, they kind of knew what they were getting into in the first place. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's changed. Um, it's not, there's more than there used to be and which makes it slightly more dangerous, I guess. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't money to be made. There's still, um, you know, like, like you said, so many cards that are seeing uh, pretty dramatic rises in price. You know, I mean, you know, we talked about our best and worst of the year. Uh, and, you know, we had, we, we cultivated that list of, of these cards that we really knocked out of the park. Um, um, and, and all those misses, uh, in spite of all those reprints this year, right? Like that was going on while we were making all these calls and whatnot. So it's not like uh, we did that without that without that effect in play. Um, you just kind of have to be a little more careful and, and educated and precise in, in what you choose to throw money at. You know, it's not, it's not like it was two years ago, that's for sure. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still, um, you know, lucrative opportunities available. In, in abundance, I guess, is my is my core point. The, sure, um, sure. Yeah, yeah. The, so one of the themes that I think is really interesting and maybe not being uh, addressed um, or, or that has bubbled up in the last couple of months, um, but I, that I think has actually been under the surface for most of the year, um, is that standard is not in a safe place. Um, 
and and that that is a little bit of a scary thing because I, standard is one of the foundational formats of the game and the brand. Um, standard in many ways, uh, barring seismic shifts in how people play the game and how Wizards promotes the game, um, needs to do well for the game to do well. Because between the the only formats that I consider core are are limited, i.e., sealed, uh, primarily in the form of pre-releases, and then later in drafts um, as the set uh, plays out uh, after its release, um, and standard, because that is where the bulk of the play activity happens. Despite you know um, Magic Pros writing lots of articles about modern and legacy, far less modern and legacy is played than those other formats. And um, more importantly, um, I think one of the lessons from this year is that um, uh, eternal formats are not uh, safe spaces either because they work counter to what the Wizards of the Coast needs to happen with the game. And the way I break that down is, is, is pretty straightforward. When you have a format that is non-rotating, the longer that, the older that format gets, the more people that are playing it have already have their decks and their cards and their collections related to the format and the less new cards they need in each subsequent year to continue playing that format. So you have a declining revenue per user per year as formats age. And that explains in a nutshell why why Wizards doesn't want to support Vintage, doesn't want to support Legacy, and may at some point choose to shake up Modern so that they can keep um, people buying cards that are related to the format. Standard and Draft and Sealed are are ultra important, the most important, because they demand that you play with new cards. Standard, by definition, requires that you be playing with the latest cards, um, and and as do Drafts and Sealed pools. So um, it's very important that those things stay healthy. And and by and large, Kaladesh has been well received um, as a limited format. It's not the best of all time, but it's definitely you know up there, maybe top five, um, certainly top ten. Um, but one of the things we're seeing is this odd dynamic tension between Wizards wanting to shorten standards so that they can sell us more cards more often, because the whole reason they moved from 24 months to 18 month cycles for fall sets um, was so that you would have to buy more of the new cards. Um, And the side benefit to that was that the format would stay more fresh because you would have more rotations more often. So if something really broken showed up like Smuggler's Copter um, or Black and Blue Devotion in in the Theros uh, era, um, you could get out of that position faster and and prevent the format from stagnating. Um, and yet, um, as we've talked about a couple times, we see the you know the backpedaling on that this fall, and all of a sudden, Wizard says, "No, we're back to twenty four month standard." It it it's really been uh, uh, a point that has manifested itself in so many different ways this year. Um, it's you know we saw the, the the first signs of it and it's just that we keep seeing this evidence that they're trying to squeeze more money out of players um and you're right it all points to the the lack of sustainability on these uh these non-rotating formats and i kind of wonder if you know i think modern is a great place i love the format i may be a little fast right now but i kind of wonder if wizards is looking at it and going okay we've kind of gauged the length of how long we can get away with one of these sets. Uh, and it's about six to eight years, right? Like you get three or four, you know, supplemental releases in the form of modern masters with firing every other year. And then, you know, the, the, the prices have settled. The format has kind of not gotten stale, but the, the, the prices have gotten normal. And then they just reset it, you know, say, okay, here's, 
Here's another one. Here's a different one. Go crazy, get excited, get wild, spend money at your LGS, buy new cards for the format as it grows, um, and then you know do that for another eight years. So, uh, you know, and plus with the death of legacy, which you know we've 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 known was coming, but we're finally seeing come to fruition. Uh, it, it it certainly certainly again you know in in similar to what I talked about with the premium cards is uh it's sort of a, a real change in the guard. Um, we're not we're kind of in a, a space that we're not familiar with as much here um and i kind of wonder if that's part of the reason there's so much excitement about frontier is it's it's sort of people can kind of like sense that maybe that's the direction we're moving and if it's not frontier specifically it will be something that looks like frontier um because that will get players to reinvest in whole new card pools again in a way that they haven't been lately well, it's funny because I've been a vocal supporter fighting for people to, you know, really research and play Frontier before they comment on it. Um, and one of the reasons that I've been doing that is because I've been playing the format and I, and the format is fun and the format is good and people are enjoying playing it around me. And I can see that it has potential, even if only at the grassroots level. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, people have started jumping in, speculating on that format now. And I've been saying, yo, pump the brakes. Like it's it's way too early to be dumping lots of money into this because so far this is no better than Tiny Leaders was where people got really excited about a format, tried it for a little while and then gave up on it. And all of the cards that had spiked from a dollar to five dollars dropped back down to a dollar and people got caught holding dozens of copies. Um, you know, the situation is such that Frontier is likely to advance. I'm hearing about new stores in various corners of the U.S. adding Frontier tournaments week after week. Like at least four or five have pinged me in the last uh, seven days just to say that they've got one upcoming. Um, and I know the guys here in Toronto that are organizing the Frontier website for North America um, are on top of you know sharing some of that information coming into the new year. But the reality is that I don't think it's going to be Frontier that replaces Modern um, or certainly replaces Standard. I think Standard pretty much stays where it is, although I, I wonder I wonder how Wizards may approach trying to adjust Standard so that they can find the, you know, the balancing point between formats that get too stale um, and don't encourage card purchase and players not wanting to play the format at all because they don't want to buy, buy cards. They don't want their cards to become obsolete so quickly. So, I mean, there's definitely a dance that, that begs to be done there, and we'll see how that plays out. Um, and on the side of modern, I think what's much more likely to happen than Wizards embracing Frontier, unless it becomes some massive movement, the likes of which we haven't seen in a while, um, is that modern just gets lopped off. Like, I, I could see them just cutting five or six years worth of cards out of modern, um, getting rid of a lot of the problem cards like Blood Moon and some of the, the earlier weirder, weirder cards. Um, and kind of just redefining the format and saying that, you know, we're not going to do this every year. It's not extended. Like you're, you're not going to have a, a year's where the cards fall off every year, but for the foreseeable future, this is your new modern, um, which would lead to, you know, a flurry of card buying activity in the secondary market. And if they paired it, uh, you know, if they, if they were strategic about how they announced that and they introduced modern uh, specific sets, that could be a real thing. So instead of modern masters being... Um, just reprints, you know, I think that, you know, we've talked about this before, that maybe Modern Masters 2019 needs to be a set that includes a bunch of new cards that are designed to in take, you know, tier two and tier three decks that are kind of almost there and just need a couple of pieces to get there and elevate them to the status where the format is shaken up, it's more robust, it's more vibrant, um, there's more going on and there's, you know, more product is being sold and more singles are being sold at the LGS level so that people are are are, are staying excited. And I, because I think excitement is the number one, um, you know, the the hype value of a format, how quickly it is being, it is uh, 
profligating through social media, you know, how much people are talking about it on Facebook or Twitter or what have you, um, is a very good measure of how well you're doing as a brand. Um, and Wizards needs to get more in touch with that moving forward and figure it out. Yeah, I mean, that's what you're really seeing with Frontier, right? As there's this, it's not even like the format is necessarily great or anything special or that you're getting to play with all these awesome cards. It's like almost just like, hey, this is new. So that's why it's exciting. It's just by virtue of its existence, it is cool, it, uh, irrespective of anything else about it. Um, See, the problem is not, that... Not, not, the, not the Bash Frontier, because I know you're a fan of it. It's just sort of like the, the idea... But I, but I think that's true. I've never told anybody Frontier is some like brand new way to play Magic. I mean, it really is just kind of like the last two standard formats jammed together right now. It, it turns out that that card pool is actually pretty good um, and has a lot of like deep interactive play that rewards skill and research. Um, and that's why I like the format. But in terms of whether it's, you know, significantly better play patterns than, say, standard or modern, well, I mean, it is and it isn't depending on what parts of those formats you do and, or don't like. Um, but what's more important, I think, is that um, a lot of Magic content is created by Magic Pros. And Magic Pros are, by and large, spikes with a few brewers tossed in there. Um, but you've got a lot more personalities that are closer to Owen Turtonwald than you do to Sam Black. Um, being able to brew brand new decks is a fairly unique um, set, a skill set that is is not as... Uh, present in the highest ranks of Magic players as, say, being able to, um, you know, commit to the format and test it well, uh, put together a team and, you know, play hundreds of games until you, you have a bead on the format. Um, and because of that, a lot of the content tends to direct our attention towards refining decks and refining formats. Whereas I think that the average Magic player who is non-competitive is actually much more casual than that and is, and is much hype, more hype-driven. They're most pleased, most excited when it's a brand new format and they have the illusion that the deck that they created um, at home on you know, a scratch pad is going to be the next big thing at their F&M night. And they're most excited during pre-releases and um, uh, uh, card spoiler season. And uh, they like new formats and new cards. And if Magic f refocuses the brand on those people instead of on the pros who you know are really about iterating towards success, um, I suspect that they'll be closer to the secret formula. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can see that lesson learned across um, other games as well. Uh, you know, I, I can go back to my my ARPG um, well again that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and you can see that uh, you know people really enjoy building their own thing, even if it's not the best, the idea that it could be the best, and they get to try it and do cool stuff, and um, that is really what gets a lot of people into the game. Uh, so, so I think you're completely right on that point. And, um, and, and that brings us to you know, the final big lesson of the year, which was the importance of casual players and uh, commander players in particular um, to Magic Finance. Um, again and again, as we put together our weekly list this year, we kept finding, uh, finding EDH cards spiking during periods of time when almost nothing else was. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's Jason Alt going to be like, are you guys just not listening to me or what? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, the, 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 yeah uh, why don't you read my articles? Comment incoming. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and we do like, it's always been a rich vein, right? Like nobody is contesting that. Um, it's just that with the way so many things are going, um, you know, the way standards been looking, the, the huge change to light, well, I shouldn't say the change to legacy, I should say the uh, kind of end of legacy, you know, the way modern has been maturing. Um, it's almost like, well, you know, no matter what, people are always going to want to get together and jam a hundred card decks with their friends, you know, and, and create something cool. Uh, and that's where we're time and time again seeing all this all this profit is in the casual circle because those are um, sort of where a lot of uh, a lot of players live um, and they're the, you know they're that invisible majority that you kind of forget is there unless you're really making a point of listening to them because they aren't that vocal on social media they aren't showing up to a lot of events at your local store but they are buying a ton of cards uh, a, a lot online. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's two big factors there. One is that um, in in some stores they are actually showing up. I think that one of the things that Commander has done, especially since it has been the Commander product series in the in the late fall has has come out the last several years, um, as, as Wizards has directly supported the format and encouraged LGSs to get involved in supporting it as well, is that Commander groups do show up for Commander nights at LGSs. And, well, the, and what that has done is allowed them to pull in a casual crowd that used to play around kitchen tables with just rando casual decks that weren't well aligned against one another. Yeah, um, it's it's not to say that that doesn't happen. I know one of the local stores here is is sort of reinvented itself as a as a commander space, um, much more so than ever existed in the past. Uh, so I, I agree that it is certainly at least much more visible now than it was, uh, you know, two or three years ago. And the other half of that that we mentioned uh, maybe last episode or the episode before was that, you know, I, I used to think of, you know, I used to read Jason's articles and say, okay, cool, that card sounds great, but they're only going to buy a single copy because it's a single copy format. The part that I missed is that in with certain cards like Chromantic Lan- Lantern that just got a reprint and spiked right away anyway, is that commander players don't have one deck. A standard player might only have one plus a bunch of random cards, and they can maybe they'll transition to a second, maybe a third deck if they're super competitive during the course of a standard season. But an EDH player might have five, ten, fifteen decks. They might have a deck for every commander they can afford to have one for. And if I've there's, got like six, seven. Yeah, and I've got five or six, and I barely play. Um, yep. And the, the the reality is that when you're if you're collecting decks. Um, then staples that fit into all of them become very interesting because you know you only need a playset of four max of anything in modern. You're not you don't need to have twelve Lilianas if you're going to include her in three decks. You just keep moving the cards back and forth. But disassembling and reassembling EDH decks is such a hassle to track that people just tend to buy extra copies of the card as long as it's not too expensive. Yeah, like uh, nobody. I am not moving soul rings back and forth yeah. between seven decks, right? Like whatever. I will just own a bunch of them. Uh, and you know, part of that, but I don't think that that's necessarily completely, I don't think that has always necessarily been as true as it is today. Um, there's a lot more commanders and as a more supported format, it's suddenly, um, I think there's the, if you looked at the average number of EDH decks per player, I would guess that it has gone up pretty considerably over the last two years. So it's not to say that, uh, that necessarily, wasn't was true in the past like yeah. that people own eight soul rings it has become true but that's where it is yeah. today one way or the other I, I would agree with that and i would tie it back to the the earlier points about building community in you know whether at the kitchen table or at your local lgs and the support 
via product regular product releases from Wizards. I mean that that is what is driving um, the you know growth and popularity of the format as a whole, and why it will continue to be a factor in Magic Finance moving into 2017. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I feel like we've touched on a lot here, James. Do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners? Um, I just want to say that uh, a huge thank you to uh, all of the thousands of listeners that listen to us every week and uh, put up with our episodes, whether short or long. Um, and uh, I hope that we've done a decent job of inf- keeping you informed and helping you guys make and save money playing Magic the Gathering this year. And we look forward to doing more of that for you in, in the year to come. Yeah, and I want to point out, I am completely aware of the irony that we call this fast finance. And I told James about that when we started, that this was very clearly not how it was going. And he told me that he didn't care. So that's where we are. Yeah, I I continue to maintain that the most important information uh, from the week prior is always in the first 20 minutes. And you can bail out anytime you feel like you're bored of us. So hopefully that's enough to keep you guys satisfied. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Let's wrap this up because it has now been like two hours. All right. Um, so where, uh, where once more can our listeners find you, find you, James? As always, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. All right, and I'm Travis Allen, uh, Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, on Twitter. Right now, I write every Monday on MTG Price, and you can find me on the occasionally weekly webcast, Cartel Aristocrats. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. And I worked this out the other day. It's about 18 cents an article. Um, so based on our track record this year, I think you're definitely getting your value, folks. You can get early access. I would like access- to know. I would like to know how much that is per word on Jason's articles. Uh, <laughs> and then you can tell Jason exactly to the letter how much he's worth (laughs) (laughs) you can get early access to this podcast on mtg price fantastic articles by the best finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering all right that brings us to the end of episode 47 closing in on our one year anniversary uh i hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as we had making it um and james thanks again for joining me this evening thank you travis happy holidays to you and yours and we'll see all of you next week uh or actually maybe two weeks from now depending on how holidays season goes but we'll keep you posted on another episode of mtg fast finance (laughs) 